Hello and welcome to New Business Paradigms. I'm Christy Jansen, Chief of Staff at the World Business Academy, and I am here with Ronaldo Brutico, the Academy's President and Founder. Benjamin Schwartz, our assistant producer, is here at the controls. The World Business Academy is a nonprofit dedicated to elevating the consciousness of people in the business community and encouraging business leaders to use their power and influence to take greater responsibility for the communities and the environment their work touches. We are recording this show on September 23rd, 2019. And before we get going, I want to invite our listeners to reach out to us at info at worldbusiness.org if you have any questions or comments about the show today, or if you have anything you would like for us to discuss on future shows. We would love to hear from you. As always, you can listen to us on the go using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio, or any podcast player. Just search World Business Academy. Also, wanted to remind everybody that we also have the weekly radio show, Solutions News. You can send us a note and find out how to listen to that if you don't already have that in your subscribed podcasts. So, Ronaldo, what are we going to talk oh, about today? I got to tell you, this craziness, is craziness, huh? Oh, my gosh. So, so we're going to talk about something today. We have a, sometimes a show where you do a thing called financial literacy, where I try to explain things that you might not really know about and take them out of the arcane world of finance into, you know, common understanding. And uh, one of those happened last week. So people were abuzz over what was going on in the, quote, repo markets. And, um, of course, I would guess, this is with all due respect to our listeners, who I'm sure are more sophisticated than most, if if one out of a thousand of our listeners really understands the repo market, please have them call me so they can teach me. <laughs> no, it, the repo market is really an arcane thing. Let me just explain what it means. And you can have repos, you can have reverse repos, you can do triple repos, you can do all kinds of repos. But a repo means repurchase. And the purpose of the repo market, which has been quietly functioning for, gosh, decades, uh, without really drawing much attention to it, works like this. And it always works through the New York Fed. Okay, so the way what happens is companies that, or other players, but basically companies who need to get cash for short swing periods of time, will post securities with the Fed and who then, well, with their bank and their bank goes to the Fed, their bank gets cash, gives the cash to them and they do what they need to do with the cash. And then when they go back to repurchase these securities, because every repo implies a repurchase. Now, there are different categories of repos I'm not going to go into. Some are actually legal contracts where title changes on the underlying asset. Others, there is no title change. In still others, there are repos which are re basically structured as contractual buy-sell agreements from the day they're entered into. So there's a lot of flexibility in how repos can come together. But the key ingredients are as follows. Somebody's got a really, really first-class security, a treasury bill, meaning U.S. treasury bill, incredibly prime corporate paper would be another one. And they want to take that asset. They don't want to sell it for other reasons. But they want to borrow cash either overnight, which is how it's usually set. This example, almost all repo transactions, we'll say 80% of them, are done in between 7 and 9 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and, and Monday's a big day, but every day, 7 to 9. And there are special dealers who are allowed to approach the Fed for repos as a repo transaction. And there are some rules that keep the arbitrage minimized and all that good stuff. But at the end of the day... What it is, it's a liquidity pump for people with really high-class securities that need to borrow money temporarily. Now, 
That seems awfully simple. It's mm-hmm. a very easy thing to understand. What went wrong last week where the markets went completely ballistic? On Monday, as an example, the repo rate, which sits routinely at about two and a quarter percent, don't get that confused with the new Fed funds rate because that's a different matter. But I'll just touch on it now. The Fed, as you know, lowered the rate by a quarter of a point last week, and they announced it on Monday. So the new rate is 2.25. The same day they announced it, they get no attention because the entire market just did a meltdown <laughs> over the repo rate, which went from 2.25. To 10. To 10. The, 10. the rate, and that's like, that's like an interest rate on a loan. Yeah, that's what exactly what it is. So, wow. so when the interest, it turned into a credit card. It turned into a 400% <laughs> increase on interest, which totally skewered the repo market. Wall Street was very upset with the New York Fed. Now, the New York Fed, there's a guy named Potter who used to do all the liquidity network for the Fed in New York. He retired in May, very recently. There's a new gal who does it. And there has never been a tremendous amount of confidence in the current head of the New York Fed. So business has been kind of nervous to see if there were a crisis, how would the Fed react? So here's a story of how a crisis happened that was totally avoidable. And that's why Wall Street went bad. Because on Monday, the Fed has been soaking up cash in our economy since the end of quantitative easement. In fact, at this point, they probably sucked up I'm going to guess a trillion dollars. So there's probably only about a trillion and a half left out there now. So when you pull cash out of the economy, and you do that by selling bonds, okay, what happens is that business, in order to get the cash it needs, has to compete with the Fed for that cash. Mm-hmm. And that typically is the way that interest rates will get driven up. But if it, has, if it happens in an instant, if it happens like, like a, oh my God, we didn't see this coming, we're out of cash. Like, it's sort of the equivalent of you walk up to Burger King and you order your meal and you pull out your wallet. Oh my God, I don't have any cash. I don't have any cash. What do I do? What do I do? I can't pay for those I can't fries. Pay for that. Those yeah. fries, that Coke, or nothing. Well, that kind of a surprise isn't supposed to happen if you're the Fed. You know, if it happens to you or me going into a McDonald's or a Burger King or whatever. Not that we ever eat at Burger King or McDonald's. We, we don't. We eat at Panera, though. We love Panera. <laughs> And uh, there are other places that we eat that I really love. But my point is, the Fed got stung because Wall Street knew that the Fed was sucking up liquidity. So factor number one. This is a perfect storm story. Factor number two. It was time to pay quarterly taxes for American corporations, which is always a huge day in the repo market because that's why they needed the cash. And they just need it for a little while. So they're not going to stick that cash and leave it laying around all quarter, they're just going to borrow the cash they need, pay the taxes, and then repay the repo one to seven days later. So they spread it out. That was predictable because that happens every quarter because mm-hmm. every corporation has to pay quarterly taxes on their respective earnings. So the Fed should have seen that coming. The third thing that's been going on is the Fed should have been aware that its transactions in the bond market of late, the inverted yield curve, among other things, would indicate that the, the Fed's not handling liquidity in a maximally effective way. And last but not least, Wall Street is very disappointed in Jay Powell because the Fed chairman's not supposed to take political instructions from the President of the United States, and this guy's doing it. he's doing right now. Which is crazy. And and they saw him doing that on Monday. Now, they liked the fact that he lowered the interest rate, Mm -hmm. but they kind of like, gosh, this guy's got like about the same amount of backbone as a worm. I mean, he's just got no backbone. And so that means Trump is in charge of the economy. Oh my God, grab your seat. 
hold on to your seatbelt. Yeah. Grab a grab a parachute. So those <laughs> all came together, and what 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 when when the Fed did make its announcement later in the day, and it got this ten percent back down to, uh, got, it got down about three or four percent went to close of the bell. The reason Wall Street was still ticked off after Fed injected liquidity was because they said, how come the Fed didn't see that coming? Right. It's, and it's like, we all thought that would happen. So when they interviewed the woman who's in charge of New York Fed today, uh, this morning, she said, well, we, we, did, we did look at the liquidity issue, and we, we left an extra $300 uh, billion, which we thought was more than enough liquidity to take, keep the economy going. And the conclusion was apparently it wasn't. Apparently not. <laughs> but right. and, and I'm going to tell you there's a there's a incredible story here of warning as well. So the first story to be focusing on is we have a pretty weak Fed. We got a chairman who takes political instructions from the president, which is exactly the wrong thing to do. I'm mm -hmm. going to come back to that in a moment. Number two, he got the New York Fed, which is the number one bank in the Fed system. The New York Fed like totally missed the ball and right. created a complete market. Free right, caught totally flat-footed, to, and it should have been something that they were it was, aware they should have seen it. And yeah. the way they handled it was bad. Mm -hmm. So the next day, Tuesday, market opens at 7 a.m., and it starts to spike again. But this time, the Fed was prepared better, and they quickly injected cash into the market, and they were able to get it back down to 2.25 well within the day. But they shouldn't have gone above 2.25 in the first place because that's where it's always at. Last but not least... They said Tuesday night, which was the right decision after all, oh, we'll inject $75 billion a day until this crisis passes, and that should be ample liquidity for the markets. As soon as they said that, everybody goes, okay. And it's over. Okay, the Fed's got, figured it out. Mm -hmm. But now, how come they didn't figure it out in advance? And, and then here's the question that somebody raised that was really a good one. A very thoughtful economist said, we knew how to work this system in 2008. When this whole thing cratered, we, we, we knew what to do and how to do it. And we had Ben Bernanke, who was an expert on the Great Depression. We had, he was also a bankruptcy expert. We had an A-team in the person of the chairman of the Fed. Mm -hmm. We had an A-team in the White House. We had an A-team in terms of the Secretary of the Treasury. Suffice it to say, that A-team is not here anymore. Right. And many of the rules that team relied upon are not in effect, so we don't know what happens when you tweak stuff now, which is why they couldn't calculate the buffer properly. Mm -hmm. You follow me? Mm -hmm. That miscalculation tells you that the Fed is at a loss to understand mm -hmm. all these new bells and whistles. So and the guardrails have been removed. And, and, and how things are connected are right. not apparent yeah. anymore, even though they were in 2008, because right. we've rewired the situation. Right. We've, yeah. So we're in very scary territory. So mm -hmm. it, it, and this does not mean that the liquidity crisis that precipitated the 2008 recession happened on Tuesday. No, this was not a bank crisis, liquidity crisis. This was a Fed-caused mm -hmm. lack of temporary cash in an overnight market called the repo market. Mm -hmm. But the handling of it ends up having caused a lot of damage to the reputation of the Fed. And it also means that Wall Street, you can be sure, is going to be very, very cautious now in whatever it does in reacting to Fed policies because they're going to say, mm, you know, these guys don't really know what they're doing, so do I want to really listen to them or do I bet the ranch on it or bet the farm on it or not? And that's what the problem is because right. we're going into a recession. You know, Europe's already in it. Um, even India has dropped its growth rate from 8 to 5%, which we would love to have an 8 5% growth rate. I'm going to say that China's probably down about 4 mm -hmm. So, you know, we're, we're in it. The soup is, is boiling. We're in a global recession, and it's happening, and we're going with it shortly. Now, why did I make that reference to the head of the Fed's not supposed to be listening to the president? Because 
And I want to invite you folks, please, would somebody write me in a question or two about like how I can explain more of this because I don't want to keep taking time without a question. But the history of how the Fed was created is fascinating. And you should write me a question about what was that all about? And why do they refer to it as Alexander Graham Bell's Fed? Which it is. Alexander, I, 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 Bell? No, Alexander <laughs> Hamilton, Alexander isn't Hamilton. it? Other, other, it's yeah. Hamilton. Yeah. Other I, Alexander. I made that joke with you earlier today about Hamilton. Yeah, no, it, it, Hamilton's so popular in the theater right now, and people know how smart he was about everything except dueling. And so the question becomes why did they set it up as an independent agency? The Bank of the United States of America is not controlled by the United States of America. People don't know that. They should need, they well, don't, you know. Unfortunately, our government doesn't know it. I'm not sure our government knows it either. Uh, and that, I mean, that it. was, that, yeah. You guys like me know it. Yeah. And that was part of the checks and balances and how right. our original. Exactly. Because the theory was, set up. you have two, you've, you've heard me say this in the show years ago. The economy works like a pair of scissors. Mm -hmm. One blade of the scissors is called monetary policy. One blade is called fiscal. And what they correctly concluded, Hamilton concluded, was you couldn't have the same branch of government responsible for both if you want to cut paper, if you want to create the economy. So what he said was the Fed should be an independent agency loosely impacted by the appointment process, which is periodic and not constant. So the old Fed chairman, in my humble opinion, should never have offered to step down. She did. Uh, because she, he was told, he told her that he was going to fire her anyway. So she got out. I'm sorry about that because she was a really good Fed chairwoman. And uh, he puts in Jay Powell, who everybody knew was a bit of a lightweight to begin with, and and little concerned about it. And now we know he is not only light, but he's not very good at prediction. He's not predictive, and that's what's going to come back to bite us in the tush. So why is it separate? Because it's an independent agency. It's designed for it to control monetary policy in coordination with fiscal policy, but not at the behest or the instruction of fiscal policy. Mm -hmm. Fiscal policy is what the administration does. That said, Trump should not be beating up Jay Powell, and Jay Powell should develop a spine so he doesn't let it bother him and just do what's right for the economy. We'll see if he does or not. See if that can grow. I don't eat grow, grow a spine. <laughs> grow a spine. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so what else is happening? Uh, okay, real quick. <laughs> I, I've picked on jobless numbers, as you know, Yes. Job creation numbers constantly, so I'm glad to be. I keep getting vindicated, and they keep revising them down. So as of today, the three month average. You're not actually glad about this. No, I am. I'm glad because you know what? I really don't like it when they try to phony data. That's another okay. thing this administration does yeah. that I don't like. It's like it's tough enough to figure out what to do if you got honest data. If it's phony data, it's impossible. So like so, but the real data that we now know with a three month moving average. But by the way, I, I think it's also going to go lower by next month. We'll, I'll bet on that one. Mm -hmm. 156,000 new jobs per month, okay? That is down 30% from last year. Mm -hmm. Last year, it was 223,000 per month. So when you have a 30% drop in new job creation, and you're trying to keep the economy at close to full employment, frankly, at full employment, it becomes tougher and tougher to do. Mm -hmm. And that's why you see a rise in the people who are now no longer who are, quote, the discouraged workers who right. are not looking actively for work. And that's risen up to, I guess, 7.2%. 7 7.2%. Yeah. So, so that's that's the whole enchilada about repos and the Fed. Yeah. And, a and lot, I hope somebody asks questions about the Fed. And one other note on the jobs that were created in this last period, many of them were actually temporary jobs related to the census. 
Actually, thirty thousand to be exact. Yeah. So if you so, take that thirty thousand out of the one fifty three, that's what I'm saying. It's going yeah, lower next it's, month. It's, it's, <laughs> although there's still a lot of jobs to fill in the, in the census, they're way behind the eight ball there too. They're, they they aren't haven't been able to find people fast enough. And well, it's because they don't want to count everybody. I know that is. Do you know the state of California has developed, I forget, some huge budget yeah, to pay really frightening. for census <laughs> workers to go to disadvantaged communities because they're afraid they won't get counted? Thank you for the time of political legitimacy we live in. Okay, here we go. Let's do a fun one. I, I say fun in jest. Well, interesting. It's interesting, <coughs> even in, if it's not. What's interesting is that oil is down at $58 a barrel. And what's fascinating about that is that's on the uh, that's the Texas Intermediate crude. And what's interesting about that is with Iran attacking Saudi Arabia yeah. ostensibly, so the half Middle the production East... of Saudi Arabia on fire. <laughs> it's on fire. You would expect oil to go way up. At any other time, it would have gone it up. Would have gone up. It, it didn't. Why is that? Because the overwhelming conclusion is that oil's a bad bet in the future. There's too much oil around. We and we're going to keep using less and less. I'm going to two statistics that are fun. One. From Al Gore, and I'm going to quote him because I sounded really bodacious when he said it. So I want if it's right. So we have to fact check this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. If he's right, God bless Al for pointing out. If he's wrong, I got it from Al. Mm -hmm. And what he said on Friday night in the news was that half of the diesel buses in major metropolitan cities in America will be replaced within five years. That's a huge reduction of diesel fuel. Huge. Now. That's one statistic. The other statistic, which I like, is, is a statistic about what the um, UC system just did. So the University of California system has a massive pension fund, which, by the way, also you can bet CalPERS, which is the largest pension fund in the world, is watching this one. Yeah. And a few other people like CalPERS. They just took their $13.4 billion endowment, and they said they are going to be fossil fuel free <clears throat> because... Not that it's not because oh, they're by the end of September. They only have a, another week to no. get to get out of the fossil fuel investments, which they will. Yeah, they will. Yeah, and this is a good week to get out because yeah, it's, it's, they're going to go down week. after the fires. Yep. Out. So why did they do that? Not because they're nice guys. They may or may not be, uh, but because and certainly not because it's the green thing to do or the moral imperative of climate change. They did it because it's a bad investment. Mm -hmm. So we, what they're saying is they don't want a single investment in old energy. Because it's a financial risk. What we're looking at now is the universities. I guess the university has $13.4 billion endowment that will be fossil-free by the end of September. But the rest of it, which totals $70 billion, I guess is going to be they're going to give themselves a longer time frame because the total UC investment fund is $126 billion, which there's something missing in one of those numbers. But basically, you get an idea of the size of it. Mm -hmm. And you know that they're on a rush course to get rid of it. And you, we've said on this program for quite some time now, half of the assets on the oil company balance sheets are water and not oil. Meaning, when they have proven reserves that they cannot economically pump and deliver to the marketplace, because it would cost more to pump and deliver it than you can get paid for it, those reserves are of no value, even though, because they were discovered, they're considered at full value today. And what's fascinating to me about that is that the number that they're going to have to deliver oil to the market for in order to preserve those reserves is going to keep getting lower as people keep using less oil. Right. And the other reason that we didn't have a big spike in oil prices is because there's so much oil floating around right now. We had a we had a surplus they didn't know how to get rid of. Right. And I guess the Iranians figured out how to get rid of some of it. Maybe that's a blessing in disguise for the oil industry. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, and on, on that note, I think you saw that 
uh, Amazon has ordered a hundred thousand electric delivery. Is it a hundred thousand? Was that many? It's a hundred thousand, and they right. plan to have those in yeah. place by twenty thirty at the latest. Yeah, I, um, yeah. yeah. So. So that's the, the another huge huge I, area. I love the Bezos statement he made when he did that. First of all, he said, "This is we're going to replace all of our delivery trucks making electric. We've invested in the company that builds them, which is a clear sign that Bezos wants to be in that business because Amazon yeah. always buys yeah, the, what it wants to they sell. They like to control the entire supply yeah, chain. Of course, why not? It's, it's vertically integrated. And uh, he said that he he was responding to at that point it was 500 Amazon employees. It turned out by the end of the day it was 1,500." who want to do climate strike. And he said, I support that. And I support Amazon. I think he said he's going to spend $400 million getting green, whatever that means. So Bezos made this very compelling statement. And what he said in the end of it was, this is the way we can prove that business understands that we are going to stay within the Paris Accords. Mm -hmm. Business is going to do it. State governments are going to do it selectively, of course, not all of them. And local municipalities are going to do it. So Let's and business as a whole is into keeping the Paris Accords. So I think what we're going to see is continued pressure in the business community for other people to come forward like Bezos mm -hmm. and to say, hey, what can we do for climate change? Okay, so we've covered a lot of ground here. Yeah. Up, you want to do California? Well, I mean, yeah. talking about climate change and yeah. how Can't California is leading in that. and One definition, <laughs> one definition of leading that is California now has 60 lawsuits against the federal government. That's definitely leading. That's got to be right up there. I mean, who's on top of that? I, that's good. I, I didn't even mean... I knew that, because Kamala Harris keeps saying it, that we have the second largest attorney general's office in the country after the U.S. attorney. But I didn't realize we had 60 lawsuits going right. on top of the regular business, whatever these guys do regularly, women. But I thought that the, 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 the one that we should focus on is the California versus Chow. Now, I'm, I'm fascinated that people have not noticed Chow in the cabinet. Who, by the way, is married to uh, Mitch, Mitch McConnell. Yeah, to, to, to Moscow Mitch. That's mm -hmm. right. Yeah. And... By the way, uh, her father, who is one of the wealthiest industrialists, and, and just to let to remind people, she's the chairman of the of transportation. Right? She's chairman of the transportation committee. Secretary of Secretary of. of it's yeah. yeah, and and that's her cabinet position. Mm -hmm. She's a representative of her father's company at all times. I mean, there's some scandals that I may or may not have time to go into, but she got caught. Uh, for example, she got caught setting up a trip for him. In China, I guess, um, as a as an official representative of a U.S. delegation, mm -hmm. until she got stopped, and then the State Department said we shouldn't do that. That's for your dad. But he's a very very wealthy shipping magnate. And uh, when I say wealthy, we're talking billionaire status, and certainly hundreds of millions of that. I know for a fact. But I think he might be a billionaire. In any event, he has been donating heavily to Mitch McConnell, obviously for a long long time because Mitch is married to his daughter. She's a colorless. Apparatic chick for the Republican Party. That's what she was. That's what she is. She's not a transportation secretary. And uh, of course, why would that be any different? Because we don't have an education secretary. We don't have a director well, we of have national intelligence. Yeah, I mean, lobbyists like, run. It's, run it's crazy. So what, this Chow suit is fascinating because she's the one who pulled the trigger that said that she's going to revoke the California waiver on emissions. Now, that what's interesting about that on a lot of levels is. I've got to see the pleadings. I'm going to go get a copy of them now that they're on file. Because as I recall, there was, a there was a contractual agreement reached between the state of California and the federal government, in which case revocation of the waiver, which that agreement was based on, probably doesn't vitiate the agreement. And my suspicion is that's what California is saying in the lawsuit. But I haven't read the lawsuit, so mm -hmm. I've got to check it out. Mm -hmm. I did ask a 
good friend who's a retired judge, and he seems to recall it that way too, so we'll see if that's what happens. So what they're saying is that the four big automakers, Ford, Volkswagen, Honda, and BMW, who all agreed to settle with California, they set a emission standard that was easier for them to meet than the old Obama standards, but considerably higher than what exists now, and definitely better than the rollback of emission standards that Trump is proposing through the, his EPA, which is what Chow is in the middle of this because she's the government agency in transportation, even though it's the EPA that rejected the waiver. So pulled the waiver. So that's how these players fit together for everybody's got a scorecard. He's <laughs> like, you can't tell the players what a car without a score sheet. Anyway, so these big automakers, Ford, Volkswagen, Honda, BMW, all want to have a certainty of the emission standards that the country's going to have. And if California has one, and it's followed by usually at least 23 states, then that's the new, that, that is the new standard, no matter what the president says. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that, I don't think that the um, automobile companies want to have anything lower, in the, I mean, worse emission standards, because then their, com their cars will be non-competitive in the global market. Mm -hmm. So they, they've got to keep selling in the global market. So the, the California standard is what they think, they know they can hit. And what's going to happen is, because the president's dragging his feet here through child, it's keeping people like Mercedes and 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 um, well, just GM, and Toyota, all your favorite auto makers, uh, Toyota, for example, uh, from signing up because they're afraid of Trump. And when Trump's a bully, and everybody knows that. By the way, Chris Coon, Senator Chris Coon, today on the on the radio on the news, said that the reason that the president of Ukraine was so afraid when he went to visit him was because you know he is, is the president allowed to do that, and should I be scared mm -hmm. about two hundred fifty million in withheld aid. Chris Kuhn said, no, no, you shouldn't be. We got the problem. You don't. We're going to support you guys. We're glad that you're pro-West. We're glad that you like the EU. We're glad that you are trying to push back on Russia. We're glad you're defending your territory. So California files a lawsuit against, you know, California versus Chow, C-H-A-O, if you want to look at the suit. Uh, 22 other states uh, are signed on in support of Californians. Uh, and they basically um, are saying, let the automobile companies in California work this out it's in everybody's economic interest, particularly automobile companies. And the Trump administration is going to find that I, even if, if the suit isn't successful, the automakers are still going to make more efficient cars because they can't sell them if they're not. Right. Simple. So the whole thing, and you know, why the Trump administration goes out of its way for fossil fuels like it does, I don't understand. But they do. So that's that. I guess um, the, um, by the way, the nation of Canada, in addition to the 22 states that are already in the lawsuit and that would follow, Canada is basically saying they voluntarily would take the California standards, which is great news, I thought. Right, and, and all of North America pretty yeah. much will go towards that. Yeah, so, yeah, because at that point, and, and by the way, they're doing that because Canada wants to make self-assemblies, right? Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah. So, um, okay, so I guess we've covered almost everything. Um, I was surprised to see consumer confidence up a little bit. You would think with, you know, all the troubles in the world, it would be going in the other direction. It rose to 92 from 89.8. I predict that will go down by the end of this month. Uh, I predict that consumer confidence, which declined marginally in August following July's rebound, I believe will go down again in September when the numbers come in. Uh, and then what else do I think is going to happen? I'm pretty sure that gold will continue to go sideways or up. Uh, you can bank, you, you can, that you can bet on. Uh, I'm telling my dearest friends to buy gold, even at the price of today, which is fifteen twenty-one an ounce. Uh, it's still a good buy at fifteen hundred an ounce. And I'm telling people to get out of oil if they still are foolish enough to be in oil. I'm telling people to get out of stocks generally because the market's overpriced, and almost everybody in the market believes that. And I'm basically saying to our listeners, you know, I'm glad we're doing the show every two weeks because there's so much news that 
is breaking. And we'd love to hear from you folks. It would really make it more informative for you. We'd be better at what we do. And if we haven't gotten back to you on any of the questions you sent in the past that weren't covered on the show, count on us to do so. Uh, we are really happy to do that as an individual matter. So with that, unless we've got anything else, I think we got we got a wrap for today. We can wrap for today. Yeah. Great. I just learned how to do podcasts. I mean, how to listen to podcasts. So now <laughs> I can go listen to this and see how we did. Thanks, everybody. Have a great couple of weeks, and we'll talk to you soon.